So little did I know when Charles was coming to visit me, he was recording his whole adventure to get to my house because this is the first time that we were ever going to meet in real life. So here I am, I'm uh, leaving Switzerland, um, having, uh, having been touring the country for the last week and I'm just uh, sitting in traffic leaving Zurich on a Friday afternoon so I'm a little bit apprehensive as to whether I'm actually going to make it uh, to where I'm going and where I'm going is I'm going to meet Demetrius um, I'm very excited by um, because uh, yeah we've got to know each other a bit over the last uh, well last year I guess uh, year and a half and um, today tonight hopefully uh, we're going to meet in person, uh, just outside Frankfurt. So um, I probably need to give him a call and tell him that uh, my arrival time is about an hour later. And I also need to figure out what we're going to talk about. Uh, <laughs> we've got so much to talk about. Right, next stop, next stop Frankfurt. So he made it across the border. He continued en route to come find me and find my house took him a little bit longer than he thought it would but eventually he got to this little town that I'm living in and after driving around in circles for a bit was able to find where I live okay so uh, I'm recording again it's um, oh, what time is it it's late it's late it's like eight o'clock it's eight o'clock on Friday and I've just driven four hours and uh, it's really dark. It's starting to rain and um, it's a bit foggy as well. I never, I don't remember it being foggy in Germany, but yeah, it's a foggy Friday, November evening here in uh, the kind of middle of nowhere, really. That's where Demetrius lives. Yeah, it's pretty quiet. So I'm, uh, well, the car says I'm like, uh, three minutes away so here we are I think this must be Dees Red oh this is such a nice little village like old houses with wooden frame painted black with white kind of uh, I guess uh, we get some first impressions more to in between and no that's not Dees Road oh no it goes round that's good it goes round so um, so I'm looking out for house numbers they're never very easy to spot in Germany so what number is this uh-huh okay so I think this must be as a side note Charles no, lived in one. Germany for a not bit that one. two more two more and we must be there I he finally is able to find my house that one there we are hello Demetrius you're up there somewhere we meet each other exchange pleasantries hello. Get to share a hug for the first time in real life. Can't believe it. Come on. I invite him in. Real life. Come on in, man. Come on in. Give him some hospitality. I don't know if you want like a team. Try and get him to do some of my local customs. No. We do a little sound check. That's uh, that's pretty good. We do a sound check. You always forget what you're going to talk, what you're going to talk about. So, what, what are you going to talk about? Breakfast. It's always that's what they always ask you, isn't it? What we did you have, have breakfast? breakfast this morning? Yeah. Um, I had cocoa pops because I never have those at home, and um, and scrambled eggs. Not 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 in the same bowl. I should add. And then we were able to record the episode. Right, so I hope should you all enjoy yeah. the first ever. Play on here. In this real life recording. recording of Are You a Robot, this is, this is Charles recording. and I recapping our year 2021 as we saw it through the eyes of two people enjoying the AI ethics space. All right, so let's start out with this right here. Okay. What? the hell is going on here charles no wonder you wouldn't let me text you that is what this man is working with <laughs> the, what year is this from first of all so and does it have snake on it no no snake and it's some 94 oh my god yeah so it's as old as you are what? yeah <laughs> uh, it's amazing it's still in the shape that it's in it's one of these ones that for everyone listening it has a 
antenna. It has an antenna that you can pull up to get better reception, I presume. It doesn't make any difference as far as I can tell. So we're um, looking at a Nokia 1994 2110 <laughs> cell phone from oh man that charger I don't even want to think about. What Do you know what's really doing. hard is it took me ages to get an adapter that you can plug in normal headphones into. Um, it took me forever, oh, yeah. and I eventually found this guy in Germany who had a website of old cell phone parts, and he had like five available, and I bought them all. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case. So if anyone's listening who wants a headphone adapter for Nokia 2110, I have all of them. Wow. Um, but it's a great, it's a great phone. And um, Why do you do this? That's what I really want to know. It's a, it's a long story, but it was... Um, so I was living... So where I live is like four hours from London. And it's in the countryside. There's no cell phone signal. And then I was working in London and I was traveling back and forth. And so I got into the habit of I would like respond to text messages when I was in London. Mm. Um, and I used my phone when I was on the road. And when I got home, I just, you know, I had no signal, so I didn't bother. And that was kind of my life. And then I thought, actually, kind of being unplugged at weekends, it kind of suits me. And maybe I could like adapt and modify my, my, my routine. And I just had this thought, maybe what would be the oldest... Uh, phone I could get like if I was gonna if I was gonna come off a smartphone how far could I go and be practical so I actually bought the phone before this uh, I think it's a 2100 yeah. it's that much bigger uh, and I think then before that is the 1110 which I think is the original Nokia uh, 2G phone and it's called the 1110 it's a bit of geekery for you uh, it's called the 1110 because it came out on the 10th of November oh, so nice. 1110 uh, just and past the anniversary yeah and then every phone after that was like the 2110 uh -huh. 3110 40 ah, i'm not sure it was a 4110 but 3120 you know they just kept the numbering yeah and like i'm two years into this experiment and i mean obviously covid has helped because <laughs> i haven't haven't been on the road i haven't needed a phone so much <laughs> yeah. but um but yeah, yeah. I, and do you know what it's actually a really good conversation starter it Definitely um, is that. I will give you that. If you want to talk about digital ethics, <laughs> then carry your Nokia. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you tuning in, we're at my house. Charles made it to Germany. And you're on a tour. I guess you're running for the mayor of yeah. Germany. Um, what? <laughs> so you've got like 7,000 people now in your MLOps community. Yeah. And I'm now the first one to actually figure out where you live. <laughs> <laughs> now I can be doxxed. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a few points that we wanted to talk about. The reason that we're here is the one year anniversary of Are You a Robot? I've talked to so many people. You've listened to most of the conversations and we've caught up at the end of each season. And then we've discussed what we've heard. And one of the things that I feel comes up so much that it would be hard for us not to talk about is this idea of education around AI ethics and how like the machine learning engineers or the software engineers or the tech leads, whoever is interfacing with this machine learning and the AI, they need to be educated. And that is how we're going to stop algorithms going out that have not had enough thought put into them and have not really been properly analyzed and like QA'd before they go out into the world. And I want to just throw that out there. What are your thoughts on education? How do you feel this needs to happen or does it need to happen? Is it maybe a misdirect? Maybe you think there's something more important than education and education is just an easy scapegoat. So I'm certainly not going to argue against like more education around ethics to the engineering community, like without question. But I think it's also, I think we need to recognize, and this is going to be a ma massive oversimplification, but it, it's something which I definitely have experienced in my career. You have people who, who are technically trained, who have, you know, really great skill in terms of taking a problem, breaking that problem down and finding technical solutions to that. And you have people who are not technically trained, who uh, who think in a different way about about things, and so I think it's it's um, 
it would be as impossible taking me and turning me into a data scientist um, as it would turning a data scientist. Very, very few people kind of transcend both worlds. And I've, mm. I've spent a long time, yeah, the last 10, 12 years plus trying to be straddling those both, both those worlds. And there's very few people who do, and, and those people I do come across are impressive. You know, and Nicholas Petit, I think, was one mm. that you spoke yeah. about. Um, so I think, I think giving um, some training or education to a data scientist or ML engineer so they have a, a context to work from, I think is, is useful, but it's definitely not a substitute from making sure there is um, governance in place, um, making sure that there are protocols in place for ensuring there's multi-disciplinary approaches to design and implementation. Um, and also I think recognizing that um, the sorts of issues that exist are, are not always issues that can be solved by engineers mm. and I think that's uh that that's important. So I you know education is important um and I think it's uh I think it's uh I think it's going to help but I think there's there's other things as well that are necessary. So then one of these other things I gather you're advocating for is having different stakeholders in the room, having yeah. a, a more diverse body of people that are helping think things through more and before the algorithm goes out they can say let's look at some other unintended consequences that maybe you didn't yeah realize yeah and i think one approach which is um you know i think can apply here is like a more kind of structured approach is red teaming so I mean, red teaming is is um, like a really well known discipline in in sort of military circles, but also in cybersecurity circles. Yeah. Like, how do you make sure that an organization has a um, you know has thought through the potential attack surface from a cyber risk perspective? Red teaming is a very effective way, and basically all it is is you just get people who are playing devil's advocate and are trying to second guess the assumptions that the team on the inside. You know, have who've been doing the job for days in, weeks in, months in, years in, you know, haven't maybe thought through. Yeah. And I think if, you know, red teaming as a as a concept and as a structure, um, you know, it's a really effective way of doing this. And I think red teaming in AI is less about um, finding the bias or technical risks in place. It's thinking about those external consequences. In many cases, maybe asking the question: Should we be using AI at all for this? Maybe there's another approach which is just as effective and. So I have thought about this quite a bit and a lot of people have brought up the idea of like having more diverse stakeholders or more different kinds of people in the room when these questions are being brought up or the use of machine learning is being brought up. And the thing is, I had the conversation with, now I'm not going to remember his name, but I have his book on this shelf let me go grab it real fast john zerilli and he wrote a citizen's guide to artificial intelligence and one of the points that he makes in here that i asked him about and i felt like it blew the whole argument that you're talking about out of the water was his logical explanation of just because you have more people making a decision does not guarantee the decision will be any more correct. It's not like we have five people making a decision, so therefore our percentage or our chance of that decision being correct goes up. There's like no correlation there. So, I mean, two things. Like one, like like super impressed with the level of research you do for the podcast episodes <laughs> that's like proper dedication buying the books of the people coming this on. is just a great book <laughs> i was gonna i bought it anyway and then after i bought it i just i was like we gotta right. get this guy on okay and then second you've definitely got me at a disadvantage because i haven't read the book so i'm not gonna be able to do the the counter argument just here just just read it yeah, yeah sure. if you want um so i think um I think the question the question here is about um, it's not just about having like diversity of viewpoints, um, but it's also having like uh, a culture of inclusivity, you know, w w with the people whose viewpoints you're soliciting. So it's kind of two axes, as it were, you want to be managing there. 
Um, but you're definitely you're definitely going to have a better outcome. I don't, know, I don't. I haven't read the book, but I, I would definitely take issue with that point. I think that uh, it's coming across there that like just because you've got more people, uh, you, you're not going to get a better outcome. If you've got people who think think about the world in a different way, you're definitely going to have thought through the consequences um, in, a, in a stronger sense. And I think. You know, you've had a few guests on who've talked about ESG um, or corporate digital responsibility and relationship to ESG. I mean, if we kind of forget all the kind of uh, AI ethics, tech ethics kind of world for a second, just look at ESG. You know, if you're managing ESG, you're managing corporate governance, so kind of expectations from professionals in terms of how companies should be run, how what a well-run company looks like. That's called mm-hmm. corporate governance, and then you've got expectations from stakeholders on social justice questions and environmental sustainability questions and um, the best way to start looking at ESG is to um, first of all identify who your stakeholders are and and it, it kind of may sound obvious but to some organizations the most important stakeholder group are the customers um, you know think Amazon you know completely obsessed with customers yeah. other organizations are completely focused on um, the employees um, and so um, there's a difference there. So I think, first of all, understanding who your customer, your stakeholders are and identifying your kind of prioritization between those stakeholders. And then secondly, understanding what those stakeholders care about, what their, what their worries and concerns are. Um, you know, that, that is how you manage ESG risk. And I think the same is true of, of, of tech governance. You know, if you're launching a product and you, have, you haven't thought through who the stakeholders are of a product, then like <laughs> you're in the danger zone. Yeah. And if you have identified your stakeholders, but then haven't kind of brought them into the conversation about how it might affect them in real life and what their concerns or anxieties are, then yeah, you're you're really running risk. And if I look back at all the controversies that have happened, all of the things that the big tech companies have been criticized for for the last 10 years or longer, you know, it's a failure of those two things. It's a failure of identifying the stakeholders and a failure of bringing that feedback loop it's not a failure of technology. The tech is rarely broken. You know, like British Airways data breach, that was probably a technical failure. That was like a, you know, diligence failure. But um, it's, it's like one of, the, one of the few examples I can think of. Okay, so talking about tech and big tech, break up Facebook. I know you wanted to get into that. And how do you feel about it? It's so incredible how really and this was just brought to my attention this morning as i was listening to another podcast how the ceo of facebook started facebook in whatever 2000 something when he was 21 in a dorm room and how it's grown and how he stayed the ceo and he's also grown it to be something gigantic and a little bit out of hand i am not a fan of facebook at all or instagram uh i use whatsapp a lot that's the one i can't get off of but i am i really have to tip my hat to him because he's come under so much scrutiny and he still is at it i mean a lot of people would have just said you know what (laughs) this isn't for me I'm going to give up. He's got more money in the world than you could ever spend. Like, what is he still just in the public eye? And he's got a bullseye on him every time Mm. the media goes out and does something. And so it's, it's quite interesting when you look at it like that. Like, yeah, he's, he's done all this, not saying that what he did was great. Actually, I do not like it at all, but, I will tip my hat to him for his, there's that COVID. There, I will tip my hat because what most people would have done is just retired, mm. right? You want to break them up. How do you break them up? What does it even mean? Like each one is its own entity. What does it look like for you? Yes, yeah, so I, I, I should, I should clarify. I, I kind of, when we were planning the session, I said, let's talk about breaking up Facebook, but I don't actually, that's not my goal. Um, but I think, uh, I think, I think it's an interesting conversation to be had about like Facebook as a, as an organization or meta or whatever they're called these days. Um, <laughs> so, um, 
I mean, I definitely agree with what you said. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, uh, I think, uh, but I think the reason he stayed on is because I think, I, I mean, I, I've got to believe, I, I don't know the guy, now spoken to the guy. Um, and I guess that's something we, we're kind of guilty of here is like trying to kind of second guess the, the kind of inner workings of a man that we never have, probably never will meet. But I guess um, my read on it is that he, 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 I think he he feels responsibility for his creation, and he wants to um, he wants to help kind of um, get it to get it to a point where it is a force for good. And I think every time I've heard him speak or seen a video uh, of uh, you know of his view, I mean the the guy at least the way he communicates, he communicates like he's on a mission. You know, he's on a mission to connect the world. I believe he truly believes in that being a force for good, and I think he is genuinely committed to um to uh to, to getting to a good place um that said i mean there's 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 some good things that facebook are doing i think the oversight board is a is a really good model but it's it's shortcoming is it's it's extraordinary narrow focus it only looks at content moderation it doesn't look at other structural problems that facebook have and so I think, um, you know, the the reason I kind of said break up Facebook as a kind of topic point is when I was listening, there's a, there's a really great Radiolab episode on Facebook, um, which you should listen to. Everyone should listen to it. And one of the questions on that, um, I think it was, it was Jad who said, well, you know, they, they were kind of analyzing Facebook. And, and one of the things that um, he kind of responded with, reacted with was, well, maybe we should just like, ban it maybe we should just break it up maybe we should just stop it and the way that reaction was just it kind of sounded so absurd that everyone kind of laughed and then they moved on and i think um i think that's the that's kind of the problem with with talking about facebook or, or meta is that um it seems that the only option would be to ban it or eradicate it and therefore, and that's clearly not an option. You know, no one could really conceive about breaking up a private company in such a way. Um, and so, um, and so we kind of get back stuck into like analyzing Facebook from, I think, in the way that Facebook wants us to analyze it, looking at kind of content moderation and, and grappling with content moderation, and kind of assuming that a platform that promotes the kind of the freedoms that play, Facebook promotes is, you know, must be an absolute given right. I think what it, it does is it deflects us from where the real debate should be. And that's, and I think around Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram, this is a really important point, but around the metaverse, which is Facebook's new or Meta's new yeah, yeah, yeah. battleground, this is even more important. And that's that it's not an open platform. It's a closed platform. The only way you can connect to Facebook is via Facebook. The APIs aren't open. There's no way of a third-party ecosystem building apps and building connectivity into the protocols of how you message somebody, how you share pictures, how you access the friend groups that people have. All of that is closed. It's a it's a closed loop ecosystem, and I think that's that's one of the things which regulators ought to look at is whether a communications platform with three billion users ought to be closed as a network or whether we should force it to be open as a protocol and there's a really good <laughs> um there's two really good um examples of things that you and i use every day which are open protocols one is email and the other is the web mm -hmm. um no one company Can controls either of, yeah. of those things and it means that people can be innovative with the protocol and the system is resilient, the system scales, um, the system creates uh, an economy. You know, there's many people who are making a living with websites or spamming people with email, but do you know, you know what I mean? It's like, it's a, it's a yeah, resilient platform. Email services. Yeah, email and so this kind of social clients. media as a, as a genre ought to be, so, ought to be um, open. That's, that's my view. And a consequence of that is it will... It would fragment Facebook if 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 they were forced to to open the protocols, we would see you know very quickly tens of thousands of Facebook esque services popping up. People would then migrate to other platforms, and eventually we would end up with an ecology of maybe I don't know ten, twenty, well, fifty Facebooks. So maybe it would divide on national lines. Maybe it would divide. Maybe it would 
be on an interest group maybe yeah. where there'll be the music mm. people's facebook or the people who do academic research but yeah i feel like the metaverse right they kind of want to make it open or it already is open and so that's one of the things that needs to happen especially if it's going to be in this web 3 movement which is becoming more popular day by day and in that regard you don't need the centralized facebook it's just facebook is is part of the decentralized ecosystem if i understand it correctly i can't talk enough on it because i don't know enough about it but it does feel like the metaverse wants to be more of that i don't know if the way that zuck is trying to do it is going to be like that i doubt it because how do you make money yeah like by doing that but i think even the choice of name i think is quite an interesting thing i mean like you know, still today in 2021, people are talking about the IBM PC. Well, we don't talk about the IBM PC, but we talk about PCs. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that, that kind of brand has stuck for 40 years. But it would have been like, um, you know, Apple or IBM or Dell or Compaq or one of the kind of early pioneers of the computer industry calling themselves the computer company. You know, it kind of, it, it kind of implies that that company is... That the thing. genre yeah. you know and it's like you know hoover you know i talk about my would i have a g-tech i talk about that as the hoover and it's not a hoover i don't think i've ever owned a hoover <laughs> yeah or kleenex or yeah. chapstick yeah there's so many of those that have yeah basically but, put the stamp on it but what but, or google you know I, i'll google something but i don't use google but i i still i still say i'm gonna google something but i think those firms have like earned the right to the to the kind of mm-hmm. you know syn, you know synonym synonym i don't know i'm too tired but you know what i mean i mean google earned that right because they are the ubiquitous search engine and i think for facebook to claim the name meta before it's a thing i think that is um you know and i really hope this you know and i start to see a lot of journalists writing about microsoft you know hollow lens arvr or apple's move into the metaverse you know i really hope that we 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 get off this metaverse nonsense fast Mm. Because, um, you know, that actually, you know, that's going to play to Facebook's hands. I think we need to find another name. And besides which, the metaverse, the name comes from like a really dystopian science fiction novel from the early 90s. So, um, yeah, it's kind of disturbing, I guess, Mm. in a way um, that that was chosen. But it's a great name. It's just um, it shouldn't have been claimed so early. That's my that's my issue. (laughs) So at the end of the day, when we're looking at Facebook or other big tech in the u.s right now there is some movements to try and break them up do you feel like those are going to go through is that even going to should it go through should regulators be looking at this more yeah totally i mean um i mean one thing we've got antitrust regulation in europe and in the u.s so we don't use it um you know if i was bill gates i'd be really pissed off right now because i mean he was subject to a yeah. huge amount of antitrust yeah, in the yeah. 90s for, for good reason and yet like everyone's left google and facebook alone why because they spend a lot of money on lobbying mm. and they spend a lot of money on things which you know there's like you know investing in education projects investing in you know things which make it difficult for politicians to turn against them so i mean they're very smart <laughs> yeah. um but i think the things that we should be looking at are you know vertical integration uh you know i think is a problem um, what do you mean by that well like i mean like apple for example very firmly moving into the semiconductor industry for its own product lines you know again that that yeah. means that it is a genius move on their part and i think under the kind of current way of thinking about how the market around tech is operating it's it you know smart move but i think it's um it's potentially harmful to innovation harmful to the tech industry um organizations being allowed to do that and also i think firms like um you know amazon um you know they shouldn't be in the business of providing data centers and the business of providing an e-commerce platform and be in the business of making the things that are sold on the e-commerce platform and then delivering the things because you know yeah they, they i mean 
Amazon have have definitely used the data in order to inform their product strategy, which gives them an unfair advantage over their competitors. So I, mean, I think those things are like, we don't need new regulation. We've already got it. We just need to use the damn thing. Mm-hmm. Um, where that case uh, recently was held in the US and the judge threw it out because he said, you know, this isn't antitrust. That urgently needs looking at. We need to make sure that the definition of, of competition policy is brought up to the 21st century. Mm. Um, and then other things like Section 230, you know, that, that needs looking at again. Um, Which one was that? Section 230 is when, you know, an organization like Facebook isn't held accountable for the content on its platform. Uh, so mm-hmm. if I wrote a whole bunch of, you know, awful things on Facebook and it, you know, caused you harm, Facebook are under no, you know, responsibility for that, um, even though it's hosted on their platform and even though they're amplifying it with their algorithms. Which they're trying to change in Australia right now. Yeah, and I think in the US as well, it's going to be looked at. Uh-huh. I mean, it's one of the things even Trump was, um, you know, pushing for. So it's kind of a, a sort of interesting kind of bipartisan mm. point around this. Um, but yeah, I think I think you know, opening the protocols would be the thing. That's the killer weapon, mm. um, and that's something which which could be easily regulated for. And um, you know, we have we have precedent for that in so in the banking industry we have in europe we've got something called uh, psd2 mm-hmm. which forces banks to open up their infrastructure in such a way that it makes it easier for consumers to switch banks mm-hmm. uh, in the uk we have something called open banking which kind of does the same thing um so you know regulation can force change and i think uh what uh, certainly the psd2 and open banking regulation is there to kind of foster innovation help startups compete against the big banks i mean hell if if you know how hard would it be to launch a social network right now it'd be yeah. impossible unless you have andreas and horowitz behind you yeah 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 completely <laughs> so yeah we do need some regulation there so let's talk a little bit more about regulation and when it comes to ai and ml how are you feeling about the eu regulation how do you feel about well i wanted to ask you that question <laughs> uh, so what I... Because I guess you're not a fan. That's that's the sense I get from the way that you... That I interview people? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm kind of curious. I was like, you've interviewed a lot of people. You've obviously been on the MLOps community yeah. you know, talking about this as well. Like, what's your, what's your sense of that? So I'm not sure that I have, like, a strong viewpoint. I think something is necessary. But I also am very much now feeling like a blanket regulation is not the way that we need to go. We need to find use case specific or more, as you were saying, like vertical specific regulation for healthcare or even more so like a computer vision model that is trying to diagnose lung cancer. That that is how specific I think we need to look at things. Instead of saying, oh, if you're using AI and it can be dangerous, well, then it is high risk. And if it has any of these characteristics, then it can be high risk. That, I feel like, is just putting the handbrakes on things that don't necessarily need to have the handbrakes being put on. And so you should be looking at more of a... (sighs) just a way of seeing AI in depth, in much more depth than it is being looked at right now. And I know there's a lot of smart people that are looking at this and creating these regulations. I know that there's been incredible thought put into it. I don't understand why it wasn't broken down into different verticals. And it was trying to be a blanket regulation, which is where I'm at right now. As far as, of course, like the ML engineers and MLOps community, I think the majority of them don't like it because they feel like it's going to stifle their innovation or it's going to unnecessarily slow them down, which is always the qualm that you hear. That's like basically the number one argument whenever regulation comes out and talking to all the smart people in on this podcast I also like the arguments that they make where it's like, no, but if you have clear barriers, that's going to enable you to go faster. That's not going to stifle your growth in any way or your innovation. So I see both sides. I don't really have like a strong 
opinion about it should be this way or it should be that way. The only thing that I do think could be better is the vertical and making it a bit more like each use case has been thought through. I think for the European Commission to regulate vertical by vertical will be really hard. So I think you have to kind of push that out to, um, to uh, you know, certainly for the regulated industries, I think like kind of what the use cases would be in financial services needs to be regulated by financial regulators. Mm. And the same with the kind of, you know, for medicine, you know, the European Medical uh, or Medicine Authority should take responsibility for that. Um, I'd have to reread it, but I, I kind of, I think from memory there is some sort of, expectation or maybe maybe it's in the in the data governance act that um uh there will be like a kind of uh kind of not baton pass but like a kind of here's where the responsibility of the commission level starts and ends and here's where it will be handled by um uh industry regulators but i think I think kind of I, I've I've heard this kind of come through. I've seen it on the MLOP Slack channel, and I've kind of seen it in some of your interviews. I guess the thing about uh, this is going to piss a few people off. Uh-oh. I wonder whether like some of the people who are criticizing this stuff actually like have you know whether they understand it enough. And that's yeah. I think this is the this is the thing. Is like somebody was like uh, I remember somebody was saying about how you know it's just really badly written, and I was like okay, that's an interesting point of view. Um, and you know, I looked at their profile, and they're you know, and I thought, okay, maybe if they're they're a lawyer, <laughs> then maybe um, you know that, that that kind of opinion would be kind of qualified. But they weren't; they were like a you know tech nerd. And it's like, well, yeah, but it's not written for you. <laughs> it's written like you got to. And he was like arguing about like, yeah, but it should be written in such a way. It's like, mate, you don't understand how law works. So just just like I'm not going to bother trying to argue with you on this one. Just drop it. <laughs> you haven't got a fucking clue what you're talking about. And I think um, there's a bit of that, and I think and I think part of maybe the failure here is around the um, not the actual draft text, but the kind of the communications plan and the mm. communication with the AI tech community, because there's certainly you know from a corporate level you've got a lot of lobbying going on, a lot of kind of responses at the kind of corporate level, but I think even those people are far removed from the people on the front line building this stuff. So I think that's yeah. kind of one problem, and then very quickly the second problem, like really the ai draft regs are only asking for like kind of three things and the two of those things are really basic which is if you're going to do this stuff risk manager and quality manager that's all it's asking for mm-hmm. and like i've yet to meet anyone who would argue against that yeah. and like what's the big deal if you're going to write this stuff think through the consequences it doesn't take long or and all it's asking is have some sort of process a system ideally that can do the quality management and the risk management. And I think there's there's no reason why any organization, any even like a one-person startup, shouldn't be doing that. Regardless of whether it's high risk or low risk, I think that's just, that's just surely best practice. That makes complete sense. And I agree with you on every point there. I also like the idea of pushing off, like what you were talking about with the EU regulation, pushing it off to the certain sectors and then they can look at all the different use cases because as you mentioned, there are so many use cases that can be applied to machine learning and each day there's more. You figure out, oh, well, we could probably use machine learning for this and make it better. So, And I think it's part of the problem is the permutations of like, if I think if you were to like limit it by use case, then people would be arguing, yeah, but this isn't exactly that use case. Yeah. This is like a slightly very different variation. So. Yeah. I think it's hard. I mean, I think it's hard. And I think um, I took a lot of comfort from the Paul Nemitz conversation. I think mm-hmm. I I have definitely questioned the, the democratic process and the apparatus of state and been frustrated with it. And I heard him very passionately say, you've got to have faith in institutions. You've got to trust in institutions. Yeah. And I thought he was bang on there. And I think the tech industry, we 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 forget sometimes, actually. We kind of championing democracy yeah. <laughs> on the other hand we don't let democracy do its job but i just hope they get on with it and i hope i hope the ai reg doesn't die a death through the parliamentary process yeah. which, it, which it could do yeah which it could do. also i mean let's talk about the other thing that we wanted to mention which was obviously not on there and we've talked about it before 
many times is the use of AI in military. And it wasn't on there, and you figured out why it wasn't on there. We've talked about that, or you have a theory as to why it wasn't on there. But where are you at right now with that whole thing? And the ability for drones to kill someone without having a human in the loop. Yeah, it's funny. I was, I was talking about this yesterday in, in a conference in Switzerland. Um, so, um, so, uh, so one of the thing, most innovative things I've seen is actually um, an organization, Ethos, um, who are based in, in Geneva, um, who basically they're what's called a proxy voting advisor. So they work on behalf of pension funds and they research issues and then they basically advise the pension funds this is how we think you should vote because obviously within a company if you own 20 percent of the shares you have 20 percent of the vote you know, sim yeah. simplistically you have 20 percent of the voting yeah, yeah, yeah. so they then tell the pension funds we think you should vote in this way okay. um and that way they kind of manage to kind of campaign for change and campaign for better outcomes and actually w in 2020 ethos published a paper um, which set out their expectations of the Swiss market. One of those expectations, uh, principle five, is talking about sensitive activities. Um, and it's I, th I think the first time I've actually seen uh, a financial organization um, like really try to push companies, not just tech companies, but non-tech companies, to kind of make clear statements about things they will not be involved in. Nice. And obviously the most clearly sensitive activity is the use of AI military context mm -hmm. and the point I made yesterday at the conference was it's a bizarre thing because public support for banning the use of automated weaponry or, or military usage is like absolutely overwhelming so it's kind of strange that in a democratic process hasn't picked up on that I guess that's my observation I'm sure there's the national security reasons why that's a thin end of the wedge or whatever, but yeah. I, I think I think it should be the, the 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 risk of it all going wrong. And I think for me, the the interview with Wanda and um, Richard yeah. was it yeah. um, that was made that case so powerfully that there's a there's a such an important point of principle, and also it's um, you know if we really do believe that it's a it's a slippery slope um, uh, and a bad acting organization country would would hold us all to ransom then you know maybe uh you know we should just have more faith in 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 international uh cooperation and and mm -hmm. and you know we've achieved it with uh, mines landmines which yeah. were you know equally yeah. horrific chemical warfare chemical warfare you know that's what we need a geneva convention on ai mm -hmm. yeah that's a fascinating subject for sure so finishing up i wanted to talk about the way in which we all see AI and the ethical issues that surround AI when we're coming from different backgrounds. And something for me, because I grew up in the U.S., could be fine. Even just the area that I grew up in the U.S. and the socioeconomic class that I grew up in in the U.S. is totally fine. But then for you... Growing up in the UK, in your little world, is absolutely outrageous that you would even think that way. Mm. So how can we both use that to our advantage and not get stifled by it? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, this comes back to what I was saying earlier about understanding your stakeholders and understanding just identifying your stakeholders and then trying to understand them but this is definitely true and i think um i, was, I had this conversation at lunch today um with yourself no, you said, was this when you cleared out the no. restaurant by coughing no, that was breakfast oh. um but uh the so this is gonna be hard for you to hear uh i think being american but um american culture is so dominated by racial tension mm. that it's 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 sometimes i guess it must be hard for an american or being in america to kind of uh, argue i'm not saying argue against kind of racial concerns but to kind of not to like understand that they're not as um they're not 
as top of mind in other in other parts of the world. Mm. And certainly in Switzerland, I think one of the things that you know, something in a conversation today with some with somebody was about how they felt that um, you know they you know totally against racism, you know, consider themselves to be anti-racist, like actively try to find ways of taking away boundaries and barriers. But they found that actually for them in Switzerland in a different context, there were other other questions about AI which were more top of mind. Mm. And that person had a, had a particular experience dealing with an American organization um, where you know, this turned into a, but why is this not a priority? And it's like, well, it might be a priority for you over there, but it's not a priority for us over here. Um, and I'm not saying that racism doesn't exist in Switzerland. I'm sure it does, and I'm sure there are problems. But it's, I think it's a particularly um, American anxiety around um, some of these questions, which which spills out into the wider AI community. Um, and so I think um, part of that is about understanding, understanding that it's just different in different parts of the world, different for people with different exactly. backgrounds. Yeah. And there is no such thing as right or wrong. I think the thing about ethics, and I think... Um, who was the guest you had? Um, oh my goodness, I, I can see his face, and oh my goodness, he he talked about cooking, and you know, ethics is like salt. You want to kind of sprinkle it. Yeah, philosophy uh, is like salt, and you want to have like a little sprinkle of it. It wasn't Nicolas. It wasn't Nicholas. It, Le- it, it was starts um, with the Enrico. So, yeah. Enrico. So, I mean, I think he made this case really well that um, ethics is an activity and, you know, it's conversation. I mean, there's two things I think we, as people, do really well. You, 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 I'm sure you and your wife will <laughs> disagree with me. This is more dimensions to this. But I, it's my limited mind. There's about two things. Like we, we have this ability with language, which is a way of us kind of communicating our thoughts transcending the physical space that our voice can act in mm-hmm. but also over time and space our, our language is so powerful um and then technology um is obviously the other thing that gives us amazing power leverage but with language you know we have the ability to kind of influence change someone else's point of view consider another person's perspective and you and i are engaging this in this now people listening to us will be engaging in this now yeah. this is ethics this is the activity we're in yeah. And I think we just need more of that. We need more people understanding each other's points of views, understanding where the lines are. I've learned so much in the last year from some of the podcast guests. I mean, Lewis Bird, one of the first episodes, I sat and listened to this, and there were some really powerful things I took away mm. because I don't share the same experience as him. I don't have the, the same other context. You and him yeah. have a much you know, closer context because you're both you know, from the United States, but even then there was difference. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the goal is um is recognizing that you know there's there's a eight billion people on this planet and there's eight eight billion points of view Lives. yeah and um and i think you know that's why i'm you know really pleased that we're making this thing happen because you know our small community our growing community hopefully will be having more kitchen table discussions as a result yeah. of this and we're progressing that that cause it's funny you talk about these 8 billion people on earth. I was just mentioning with a friend about how when I was in a city again, it reminded me of how many people are on the planet and how each one of these people has their own lives that they're living mm. and they're going off and doing their own thing. And he was like, there's a word for that. I think it's called like sonder. And so I didn't fact check him on the word. I should, I could now, but... Uh, we'll put the definition of Sonder in the description <laughs> below. And it was really just one of those moments where you have a realization, right? And as I'm looking around, I'm by myself in the city and I'm seeing people that are in groups and you're together for that moment and then you go off and you do your own thing. That person does their own thing. Uh, and so it's fascinating to think how we are connected in that way and we are very much individuals and so this was in san francisco this was in with no acid yeah. no weed it is legal there but i did not go and sign up to be a guinea pig for their psychedelic tests at the university of berkeley 
but uh, this was all all pure, just from the secondhand smoke of the homeless people. The, yeah, but that's the thing. I mean, I was going to say that San Francisco is like the birthplace of the the beating, throbbing heart of our tech industry, and yet it's a place that's so it's just such huge inequality. Yeah. You know, just I I I I was shocked really because for me. It's like the city on the hill, the city, city paved with gold. You know, all these big tech companies. I went to Menlo Park and Cupertino and, yeah. you know, all the tech companies I, I know and love and hate. You know, I kind of saw their corporate headquarters and yet, you know, it's in the middle of just massive. And so it's this weird thing that the birthplace of tech, well, at least it's not the birthplace, but kind of the, the real center of, you know, it has its own deeply rooted yeah, social problems. Yeah. And I just wish that there was a little bit more introversion and kind of maybe you know fixing if you know if the tech industry was headquartered here <laughs> in this in this region i think this it might be a, little a, town. a bigger force for good than than where well, it is what's really interesting is how people talk about they are paying a lot of money to try and fix the problem but what they're doing is not working they're not going about it the right way and is money the answer <laughs> exactly it's like what is what are the ways that they can go about it because throwing a bunch of money at it is not working, obviously. So, I mean, I hate to end on this note though, but I think it's time to finish this podcast up. It's been quite a bit that we've been recording for and I want to just say, yeah, this has been awesome. Being able to talk to so many bright minds, as you said, expand my viewpoint I like to think that I'm a very open-minded person, so getting to hear from so many people along different accesses of beliefs and how these specialists will come in and school me on all these different pieces of AI or regulation or military use of AI, and I never experience that in my day-to-day -day without having those conversations with people so it's been so cool to get to do this podcast and learn from these people so uh yeah that's what i will end on well that's good and i've learned a huge amount and this is like weird like i said this in the car when i was i was i was coming over like um you know i've spoken to you like a ton of times in the last year and a half yeah. um so i kind of felt like we kind of knew each other to some extent but also like you know, I've also sat through yeah. 20, hours. 30, well, maybe 40, 50 hours of conversations uh, yeah. that you've had with other people. <laughs> so yeah. I've, de I've definitely got you at a disadvantage and I probably know you more than, you know, you me. You know my tics, you know all yeah, of yeah, my yeah. stutters. Exactly, exactly. Stuff. Um, but I, I have learned and I'm somebody who's, you know, I consider myself to be kind of already kind of deeply in this space. And, you know, I think that's the great thing is that you can always... You can always learn, and this is why it's been such a great project. And I think mm. seeing, not just seeing the experts, but also seeing the process through your eyes as you're unraveling some of these mm. questions and grappling with some of these questions. And let's be honest, some of them are, some of them are, are really hard. I, mean, I think some of them have been, you know, much simpler, much clearer. But I mean, some yeah. of them have been really hard. And um, yeah, I've definitely learned a lot, and hopefully. Our listeners have as well so yeah, yeah. We will we'll do it for another learn. we'll do it for another year until we get bored yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep until i come visit you in london next yeah, you're year very or in, you're very in the uk and your little farm <laughs> with your cows and all that good stuff so good this is us signing off with the uh, fist pump that's it there it <laughs> okay, is good stuff all right man boom thank you dude